Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. Mark and Mark Daly and Hamilton here on July 1st. That means it is Canada Day. It is summer. It is slightly cooler, thank God, compared to where it was just a couple of days ago. Mr. H, how's it going? You look slightly less withered than the last time we spoke on Sunday night, right? Full disclosure, I'm blessed that the new house we moved into last year has air conditioning. And, And I'll be honest. The topic that came up with every meeting during work this week is how are you battling the heat? How are you fighting the heat? I didn't want to let anyone on to the fact that we had AC. <laughs> so I was playing along like it's tough. We haven't slept in days. You were taking multiple showers. I felt so bad being the only one that I knew that had air conditioning. But for us, it wasn't so bad, but it was it was crazy. You know, we now have a we have a small town in BC that's recor- recorded a higher temperature than has ever been seen in downtown Los Angeles or Vegas or Dubai um, or any of these kind of extreme hot weather yep. cities. The Pacific Northwest from Portland right up north got hammered. And I never in my life thought I would see 120 degrees in the suburbs of Vancouver. And we were darn near close. And you, in the meantime, you escape the city just as the temperatures start coming down and you go into the interior of British Columbia, which is typically a really hot place yeah and especially right right now it's even more so and i'm staying in a place where they don't even have air conditioning in the hotels because it's never deemed a requirement so we got here like a couple of days ago fortunately we're going home tomorrow morning but you know it's just um yeah it's it's toasty let's just put it that way and uh, we've got some fans going and stuff like that and the thing that's interesting too is that the room is so hot i can't get my electronics to pro like charge properly like my my apple watch i had to put it in the fridge earlier to cool down because because it's outside the operating temperatures that it will charge at, which is where. So I don't know if it's just, um, it, it could be just as simple the fact that maybe my charger's on the way out or something, or the cable's a little bit funny, but it's uh, it, it's a bit strange. But anyhow, it, it has been a lot cooler. It, it started cooling off actually when we came yesterday, and we, we just had a thunder shower not so long ago, which has kind of broken some of the tension outside. And it, it was it was starting to cool off earlier, even more so. So I'm hoping for a nicer, cooler day uh, tomorrow. Anyways, we got lots to talk about, man. And you've been teasing people all week with this, this you know, phenomenal, what was it, upper deck or tops, the trading cards? Tops. And I have tops. to admit that I, I'm somewhat disturbed by the fact that you know, like, how to measure, like, such minute, minute quantities of things, like, down to grams. I'm kind of wondering if perhaps you have, like, some sort of illicit side, you know, hustle going on here. But anyways... Well, we shouldn't mention anything that we we might regret afterwards. So, but anyways, cool, man. I'm looking forward to opening these up. We're, we're not going to do it now because we are the the no, masters no, no, no. Tease. of tease. We're, we're going to tease. tease this. But uh, just just hit me with some details. So, what, how, why, where, and when did you come across these bad boys? So I, I think it was probably one of our listeners that had shared a comment with me a couple of months ago because we've been talking about Formula One memorabilia yeah. and I had no idea these existed, none whatsoever. And somebody had sent me a link and I apologize, I don't have the name, but I was pretty intrigued. I'm like Formula One trading cards. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid in the early 90s and you, you'd go down to the corner store, yep. the convenience store, and you'd have a buck or two and you'd pick up a pack of upper deck hockey cards or baseball yep. cards or maybe the value of peachy cards or what or the tops cards whatever it would be and and of course you're always looking for that great card that that rookie card or whatever the case may be but this is this is a whole different ball game so the first thing i thought was like hey you know what i really want to collect finish the set if i'm going to do this so i called around to a couple of places here in the lower mainland and i found a shop that a sports memorabilia shop i'm like hey do you have any boxes of this this product and he's like yeah and i'm like great how much is a box thinking 60 bucks for a box he's like 800 dollars, <laughs> and i'm like 
And like $800, like what's in it? He's like, you get 18 packs of four cards. Wow. And I did the math in my head. I'm like, this is, this is extreme. So my, my wife was, uh, was kind enough to allow me to go onto eBay and buy a single pack. So that's what we have tonight. But apparently there's some really exclusive cards in it. The set's about 200 cards. It includes all the F1 drivers, all the F1 cars, all the F1 teams, but it also includes the Formula 2 drivers, teams, and cars. So there's a very high probability that you might get something that's not super exciting, but maybe becomes worth something in the future if that young driver becomes something in Formula 1. So super exciting. Looked on eBay now, and again, all of our our sports memorabilia listeners are probably cringing like why are you using ebay as the <laughs> index for the value of something know, but right? it looks like there's a lot of cards in the sets in the 600 to 800 us range so who knows maybe we got something cool and that scale that you're hinting at the reason we have oh, a very, have very specific it's scale, all good it's all good <laughs> no no this isn't that it's not what you think it is but a few months ago when i hit when i hit my midlife mm-hmm. crisis i bought a a very high-end gold chain and I bought it online and it was custom made, but I was super skeptical about whether what I bought was what they sent me. So we bought a scale to make sure that it weighed exactly what I had paid for. So that's why we have it. Not for any illicit <laughs> BC-based business reason. You know, I, I really like to cook. That's one of my things. I, I really enjoy it. So I have a nice scale so I, I could appreciate that. There but you go. Hey, just going back to the cards, for 60 bucks a pack, I personally hope that Bernie Ecclestone writes some profanity or some sort of like nasty comment <laughs> in every pack. That's all I can say about that. But hey, I want to open and basically bookend the show on two Ferrari stories. And they're, they're kind of, the, the first one involves Red Bull. The last one involves Mercedes because I think they're both very, very Ferrari comments. Let's uh, just put it that way. So the first one is, this really is interesting because Christian Horner, Red Bull principal, uh, team principal that is, said that they had exploratory discussions with Ferrari over an engine deal starting in 2022 before that they decided to take over that Honda engine IP, which we've beaten into the ground and discussed many, many times and rightly so because it's very exciting. And I think this is a really, really interesting that that they decided to do that. But I mean, what options did they really have? Could they really go to Mercedes and ex- uh, you know, expect to broker a deal for Mercedes power? Maybe if Toto Wolf decided to part with the engines for some exorbitant fee that uh, that he decided on, if they decided to provide them with, uh, with with customer engines, or there was the other option of Renault, which let's face it, that's kind of been dead for a while now. But I always kind of wondered what would the recent departure of Cyril Abitaboul from Renault, and he was kind of the boogeyman for, for, for Christian Horner. They obviously didn't really get along. I thought season two of uh, Drive to Survive really it really portrayed that relationship really quite well in several episodes, kind of all through that season, just how awkward it actually was. And then Renault stealing away Danny Ricardo and all that. I thought it was just brilliantly uh, portrayed. So Renault seemed like a non- non-starter as well. So Ferrari seemed the only logical choice, right? Out of all three of those engine manufacturers. And it really was quite fascinating that they actually went uh, so far. I mean, um, Christian was talking on the Formula One Bond uh, Beyond the Grid podcast, pardon me. And he said, quote, the most natural thing was to have a discussion with existing suppliers. Mercedes was a very short conversation. Total Wolf obviously wasn't keen on, particularly keen on that one. In fact, for, uh, Renault, their aspirations of a team uh, did include supplying a team like Red Bull. The most willing was Ferrari. We had some exploratory discussions. 
but to be a customer, so to have to accept all of the integration, particularly with the new regulations that are coming, would be a massively hard pill to swallow. That's when we start to explore the possibility, how do we take on this challenge in a Red Bull manner and see if we can put together a deal with Honda for this foreseeable future. The freeze was fundamental to that, otherwise we wouldn't have had the capacity to develop an engine. To take that step, and it's a big step, to take control of our own destiny as an engine supplier and bring the whole lot under one roof in Milton Keynes would, pardon me, it would make us the only other team other than Ferrari to have the whole lot within one facility, end quote. Yeah, I mean, he basically sums it up uh, very nicely. And Ferrari seems like the only logical choice. But to take on Ferrari engines, you're taking on a lot of baggage, not just in the mechanical side and putting that Ferrari PU in the back of your car, but everything Ferrari that comes with it. And the fact, who knows, could would, would I, I would not be surprised if Ferrari had the nerve, the gall to actually put a Ferrari driver or insist in trying to put a Ferrari driver into a Red Bull. And if you're Christian Horner, would you want to have to deal with that? I would think no. Absolutely. This is possibly for me because I really do love the business side of Formula mm-hmm. One. And it's one of the things that I find so intriguing, so entertaining is if you go back the last four or five or really even six years, that Renault that Renault Red Bull relationship has always been problematic. In fact, to be totally honest, even if you go back to the glory era for Red Bull, which is that 2010, 11, 12, and 13 cha- championship, the relationship wasn't good then. It was always problematic. There was always a ton of friction. And it was it was really curious because at that point, Renault didn't have a factory team. In all essence, Red Bull was representing the brand at a really high level. There was a ton of success, but the relationship was really, really, really poor. If you remember, and I think for a lot of our newer listeners, it's interesting to know that as early as 2014, Red Bull was shopping for a new power unit. And I I think at that point, it became pretty clear to them that the power unit that they wanted was the Mercedes unit. And Mercedes wasn't in any way willing to entertain that conversation. No matter how much money was going to be made available, that wasn't a conversation they wanted. And Bernie Eccleston actually got involved and tried to broker a deal between Red Bull and Mercedes for Mercedes to ultimately start providing power units to Red Bull. And obviously it wasn't something that that Mercedes was uh, was interested in. And I get it. Like, why would you want to provide power units to your principal competitor, <laughs> a team that just ran off four titles? It doesn't make business sense. And ultimately within Formula One, you, you're required to provide a power unit. If you're developing power units, you have to be able to provide that power unit to at least one team. You can't harbor that asset and not share it with anyone. But of course, Mercedes was in a position where, at the least, they were providing power units to Force India and they were providing power units to Williams. They weren't obligated to do so, but Bernie was very, very upset about this. And if you flash back to the 2016 Japanese Grand Prix, Mercedes dominated. They took two podium finishes. The cars weren't shown on TV at all. And it's because Bernie mandated that as punishment to Mercedes for not supplying power units to Red Bull, that they were going to strip them out of the broadcast. Because of course, the value to the sponsors for Mercedes is being shown on TV and having that level of exposure. So this became very, very political. Ultimately, obviously, it didn't play out and the Honda relationship came about because of the divorce with McLaren. But the other consideration, too, is this relationship's probably deeper than is even being led on here. Because one thing that most people forget is that in late 2015, 
Red Bull switched the power unit supplier of its sister team, its baby team, Toro Rosso, to Ferrari. So in 2016, Toro Rosso was actually running 2015 Ferrari power units. And that was in part because they wanted to get a sense of what that relationship was going to look like. Now, ultimately, it was an unusual agreement in the fact that they weren't getting the newest engine. They were getting a 2015 spec engine. They didn't get any upgrades, nor did they get any factory support. So it's interesting that this conversation uh, continued subsequent to that experience. But it's it's interesting. And I think to your point as well, if I'm Ferrari, if I'm going to give my most valuable asset again to another, a principal competitor, I think I'm probably going to want more than cash. And maybe that's a driver tie-up or some sort of branding tie-up to your earlier point. I don't think it's going to be a strictly a cash deal. And certainly would they not allow that engine to be rebranded to something arbitrary? Oh, yeah, like they did a couple of years ago with that Renault power unit and they called it was a Red Bull Tag Hoyer. Tag yeah. I mean, that, that's hour, not yeah. unusual. We've seen things like that before. But I, what I did think was interesting is that when they did take over that Honda IP is that they said that they were going to retain the naming rights for the power unit to themselves. So this will be a Red Bull car powered by a Red Bull engine. So that's a pretty cool. I mean, you don't see Mercedes selling off naming rights to their power units or Ferrari. So it, 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 I mean, especially for, for both of those teams, it would just seem almost sacrilegious to see uh, both Mercedes and Ferrari with some sort of weird branding tie up uh, on their on their engine It'll almost be like they're coming down a little bit. Uh, you know, it's a little bit beneath them, if I could uh, put it that way. But uh, very, very cool. I mean, uh, just uh, looking in here in the, the live chat, Michelle G checking in. She says, I wonder if after this year, other teams will come calling for the new Red Bull powertrain engine. Possibly, I guess the, the big question is, is how good is that uh, Red Bull engine going to be? Obviously, there is going to be a bit of overlap. I know that Honda is going to supply some people, some brain power to kind of ease that uh, that that transition. But still, the big uh, the big question is, okay, well, it's a Red Bull engine, but it's got to be a good engine. And the, the benefit to them, of course, is that this engine is going to be frozen for the next several years until 2025. So at least they don't have to worry about really falling too far behind the curve. So we'll see. If, absolutely. Yeah, if they start winning races, then absolutely people will want to, to, to come and uh, get those engines as well. So Aston Martin secures more or another senior Red Bull technical signing. I, I did a double take when I first heard about this because this almost seemed like it was very Red Bull signing away key personnel from Mercedes, which really seemed to be a thing, what, about two months ago? It seemed like there was a whole bunch of those stories yeah. that... Yeah, senior personnel are moving over from Mercedes to Red Bull to join the their their new uh, power unit uh, division. Total Wolf uh, really played it down. Christian Horner really played it up. Uh, of course, you would expect uh, both of them to, to do that. So, anyway, said so, uh, just last week, Red Bull's head of aerodynamics, Dan Fallows, pardon me, said uh, he would be joining Aston Martin as its new technical director after his current uh, deal with Red Bull rents out. It uh, has been announced that they have another. Um, Sorry, aerodynamicist uh, Andrew Alessi, who's going to be uh, joining uh, Aston Martin as their new head of technical operations. So I guess you can kind of see that, uh, you know, you see a couple of guys that have worked at a, at a place before. They have the, one of them gets a new opportunity somewhere else and he's kind of bringing my guys along with him. Or if if he takes a job that uh, they try to bring in somebody's worked uh, previously uh, before. Anyhow, Aston Martin team principal Otmar Safnauer had to say, quote, 
Two weeks ago, we are announcing the hiring of Luca Ferbato as our new engineering director, who will start work with us in due course. Last week, Dan Fallows, uh, forthcoming arrival as our new technical director, was also made public. Today, Andrew Lacey has added to the impressive lift of our senior technical slash engineering hirings as head of technical operations. Ours is a great team, and it has always has been. Many times this year, we have said this team has always punched above its weight. Now it has the weight to which uh, to punch harder. End quote. I love how how Otmar is saying that because that is the exact phrase that uh, that you and I have literally used to discuss Aston Martin slash Racing Point slash Force India literally for years. So just another indication that the, all the big the big names in Formula One listen to our humble little podcast, if only, right? But anyways, Absolutely. I think this is interesting because it, it is good to see that even though that this team has struggled so far out of the gate to this year, that they are trying to do something, bringing in new people to uh, deal with the, 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 the challenges that they're having, especially going into this new era with the new cars. So these guys probably depending when they're going to join the team will have some impact in that car whether or not they're going to be there soon enough to help with the design of it that's another question anyways i want to hear your take on that but i'm going to throw a break in here quickly so you have a few uh, moments here just to think about it and you can reply in just a moment so hang in there guys we'll be back in just a moment so don't go away we'll be right back passion drive and patience The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, well, welcome back to the show. We're talking Aston Martin. We're talking about some new signings to their behind the scenes, to the engineering department and to their aerodynamics. Mark, what do you make of this with these announcements over the past couple of weeks with Aston Martin basically shoring up and strengthening their off the scenes, the some of the very important areas of design and development for this car? Well, Mark, thank you for teeing up that question so well. I think this is a a great move for Aston Martin. And I I think the story here isn't necessarily that they're able to lure talent away from a chief rival, but that it's a very, very tactical, very, very tactical move in the sense that the folks that they're bringing over right now are folks that are coming in to function within the team of aerodynamics, right? Like if you look at what Aston Martin has really struggled with this year, It hasn't been top-end power. It hasn't been the power unit. It hasn't necessarily been mechanical grip, so grip that's being produced through the suspension components and the tires. Their biggest issue this year has really been they got the aerodynamic philosophy wrong, and as did Mercedes to 
a relatively similar extent. So the fact that they're bringing in talent that's familiar with that function of the car is is obviously a good sign. And the folks that they're bringing on are folks that have been very, very successful. Now, the challenge, of course, when it comes to aerodynamics is that's not something that you can turn on and off. It's typically something that requires a degree of evolution. And it's something that's typically earned performance gains through aerodynamics are typically gained through time uh, via computer rendering models and through the physical wind tunnel using half scale and full scale models. So I wouldn't expect there to be an immediate impact and certainly no impact this year unless they can get a couple minor aero upgrades out. I think even next year is going to be interesting because the 2022 car is probably so far along the development path. But I think the real value of these folks is probably going to be shown late 2022, late 2023. But I think it's a good move. And then I think also just from a talent perspective, we've talked about this before that within the UK, it's seven of the 10 Formula One teams are based out of the UK. And all of them are relatively close to each other. If you look at where the if you look at where the Red Bull team's based out of, they're based out of a city called Milton Keynes, which is about a half hour away from Silverstone. And the Aston Martin team's based out of Silverstone. So ultimately, for me, as a as a asset, as a person that's bringing value to a company, ultimately, I just changed my commute a little bit. I'm not going into Milton Keynes. I'm going to Silverstone. It's not a big mm-hmm. deal. But I always, I always find it so intriguing that these teams are constantly poaching and luring away talent. And of course, no one will ever concede to kind of coffee shop meetings on a quiet Sunday morning to try to lure somebody out with a bunch of incentives and, and financial packages. Obviously, the explanation is always, we posted this job and they applied for the job. But I know that there's a lot of kind of shady stuff happening and I would love to know more about it, but it just, it just kind of makes sense. And I just think this is a great move for Aston Martin because if they want to address their single biggest challenge right now, and that's arrow, they're doing the right thing by bringing on people that excel in that category. You know, you raised a really good point there and just the, the whole topic of some Mercedes people joining Red Bull and some Red Bull people joining Aston Martin. I don't think that's unusual in sports in general. How many times do we see it like in the NBA or the NFL, for example, head coach leads Team the A goes All to Team B. Takes, Assistant coaches. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, th- this is a, a not anything unusual. It's just not like a high-profile thing, say, like, you know, the, the team principal moving and taking all the key engineers and everything, which might be a little bit more kind of akin to the head coach taking his his assistants, his uh, offensive coordinator, his defensive coordinator, whatever it might be. So totally, totally, totally. not uh, unusual for, for, for sports uh, in general, but very interesting. The- hey, sorry, go ahead. And the only other, yeah, I'll just add one other thing too, just because this occurred to me as well. We'll probably see more of Mm -hmm. this in the years to come because I think in the past, in the pre-cost cap days, there were really no financial costs on your operation. Whatever costs you had were self-imposed just in terms of the funds that were available. Now that there's a cost cap on the teams and the personnel, with the exception of your top three earners and your two drivers, your team, your actual personnel fit into that cost cap. My sense is that teams might run into a situation where we've got some really great personnel, but we're hitting our cost cap and we've got this guy who should probably be promoted to a technical director or to a department head. We just don't have the bandwidth to do that. He's great. We want to keep them. We just can't do it because of the cost cap. So I suspect we'll probably see a lot of personnel changes amongst teams simply because individuals will hit their personal ceiling, their financial ceiling within a team, and they're going to be looking for opportunities. Mm-hmm. And in the past, maybe a Red Bull or a Mercedes or an Aston Martin retains those folks. But look, at the end of the day, I, I have to hit this cost cap number. And if I give you a 30,000 pound raise, 
that's not possible. I think we'll probably see a little bit more of this over time. Yeah, I still wonder if we're going to see some sort of uh, situation that we've talked about before on the show where we might see transplanting of key personnel from, say, the big team into, say, some of the smaller customer teams. I think that we talked about, We I think we used the Ferrari example. And we're 100%. Yeah, dropping them in it like Aston, sorry, not at Aston Martin, Alfa Romeo, Haas, Haas etc. Yeah. right? So very, very interesting. Keep them in the family. Exactly, keep, keep them, them in the, the family one yeah, way or the other, right? If, if I'm Ferrari and I'm going to lose key personnel because of the cost cap i'd rather them go to a customer team than go to a competitor oh exactly you know, you know right? what i mean yeah 100 now i want to switch over to this next one this is a completely unrelated topic but i think this is very interesting so i'm just going to sort of tee this one up for you and i would love to get your take on this now is this an accurate take from michael massey the faa race director or is he self-glossing and pumping up his own tires now according to mr massey he believes that the increased fierce title scrap fight battle whatever you want to call it is down to the increased f1 technical directors that they have issued over the opening eight rounds of the season basically since the beginning of the year agree disagree <laughs> you know we've talked about this in little bits and pieces the enforcing it seemed like the arbitrary enforcement of track limits the, the the technical directives around the tire pressures the flexi wings now the pit stops all these uh, different uh, different things and as much as i agree that you have to keep sort of close those loopholes and prevent out and out and blatant cheating I don't particularly have an issue with teams pushing the envelope and and using ingenuity within the limits of the rules. And I can see them trying to cover off the loopholes, as Massey said, but at the same time, to me, it almost feels like they're taking away a little bit of the fun of Formula One. As long as it's it's safe and they're not out and out blatantly cheating, then yes, I think that uh, that, 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 that should be closed off. But I can't help but think that it's it's taking some of the fun out of the sport. Agree? Disagree? Yeah. So I, I'm glad you brought up this subject because it's infuriating <laughs> to me. If what he is inferring is that the title race is closer than it would otherwise have been because the FIA is inserting itself into the championship by issuing technical directives <laughs> to kind of guide the championship – then that is total garbage. The FIA's responsibility isn't to govern competitiveness. The FIA's responsibility is safety and structure and consistency mm -hmm. and management of the races. Competitiveness, that's Formula One's gig. If, if, if the FIA feels like it's their role to inject itself into the championship – then this is absolute nonsense. This is a scandal. This is explosive and everybody needs to be talking about it. Because again, at the end of the day, we shouldn't be in a position where the FIA has to continually inject itself into the championship with technical directives mm -hmm. and clarifications of rules. Because to your point, I'm all for teams pushing the boundaries. That's Formula One now. It's Formula One in the 2000s, the 90s, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s. It's the FIA's responsibility to create a rule book and write technical regulations and to write the sporting regulations in a way that minimize this. What we've seen so far this year, well, not totally, totally unrivaled in terms of the historical nature of the sport, 
it's getting a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm also at the point now where I feel the championship and I, I don't want, and I, I'm the king of hyperbole, but I think sometimes I get a sense of this championship be, could become a little bit artificial. Like if we keep pushing these technical directives and these rule clarifications in a way that we haven't seen it before and it interrupts or it influences the championship, that's garbage. Yep. Like I get it. If you need to introduce a technical directive specifically because of a safety issue that could save a life or save the life of a fan or a track marshal, I get it. But I think what we're seeing this year isn't that. I think what we're seeing is teams that are putting too much influence into the FIA. They're putting too much pressure. The FIA is responding in ways that they haven't before. And maybe I'm reading too much into mm -hmm. this, but it is not the FIA's job to influence the championship. It's their job to govern the sport from a logistical and a safety perspective. So this works up and those quotes, and maybe I'm reading too much into them and I'm inferring too much from those words, but I was very, very, very uncomfortable reading those. That ultimately technical directives shouldn't be shouldn't be influencing the championship unless they're very specifically related to very specific targeted safety issues. Yeah, so this basically all was kicked off by uh, Frederick Vasseur, who's the team principal of Alfa Romeo. And uh, he was uh, he basically had to say the following, quote, I think it's not the right way to do it, uh, that now we have more TDs than press releases on the Monday morning. Each Monday, we have a list of TDs. It's the new way to govern F1, and it's not the right way. The next topic will be the front wing deflection. We have to speak about this, end quote. So then uh, Massey responded to this by saying, quote, obviously with the number of areas going on and with an increased step in the battle at the front, it has certainly heated up a lot more than what we've seen in quite a while. And it needed for clarification on, on operational guidance and directive in certain areas, yes, has increased. But I think that has also increased as a direct result of what's going on with the competitive order on the track, end quote. So, you know, the, the thing is, I... I have an issue with a governing body, a regulator overstepping and very much like you say, interfering. And I totally agree with what you say that the ingenuity and finding new and, and different ways to really work within the limits of what the rule book says. I think that's part of Formula One. And if something comes up, I mean, I, I don't really have an issue with that that uh, TD that came out after the Azerbaijan Grand Prix, where they had to increase the tire pressures by two P uh, PSI, which doesn't seem like a lot, sure. but it's a lot for, for a Formula One tire because Lance and Max could have had some scary, scary results. I mean, both of them were lucky that even though they had a tire blowout like that, even though it ruined their race, they both walked away unscathed and unharmed. And at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. So if they felt upon review, that's what they needed to do, then that, that that's fine. But it just seems that the stuff that they're coming up with just seems like it's going way too far down in the rabbit hole. And it, it really, to me, has the feel of um, interfering a little bit uh, too much. And th and that's just my opinion, totally my take from, from my side of the fence. Uh, maybe I'm spot on, maybe I'm off by a mile, or maybe I'm somewhere in between. I, I don't know. But just in general, I don't like the look of it. And I, I think that it... I would like to see less of it, and I can understand why the team principals and <laughs> like Vasur are getting a little bit uh, irritated about it. I completely agree yeah. with everything that you're saying, and I think the danger, and I don't want to be, again, 
I, I don't want to be alarmist, but I think the danger is Formula One's in this really unique position right mm-hmm. now where you've got this big influx of new viewers. And from a perception perspective, this doesn't look good. It's not necessarily going to turn off you and me who have been watching the sport for decades. But if I'm new to the sport and this is my first championship mm-hmm. and I'm invested for the first time, it doesn't look good when you issue a technical directive on something like a pit stop. And pit stops are a crown jewel of Formula One. It's something 100%. that everybody outside of the sport recognizes as being really unique and special. And now you're taking something that's a true earned benefit of certain teams and putting them at a disadvantage. Because let's be honest, there's teams that regularly run three second pit stops. This won't impact them at all. Mm -hmm. But there's teams that have earned really great sub two second pit stops. And they did that through training and personnel and hiring decisions and strategy and tool selection. Mm -hmm. And now you're putting them at a disadvantage. And it's in the spirit of safety. But nobody's asked for this. And nor have we ever been able to link a safety in incident to this it's to me it's a little bit infuriating partly because i don't like to see it mm-hmm. but partly because i worry that it's going to turn off people that are new to the sport and if i'm liberty if i'm f1 i got to be leaning to the fia like we're all for safety you can't damage you cannot damage what we're trying to build on the commercial side of the business which is enticing and nurturing this new fan base because again if it's safety you and i all in yeah. all in every day all day. But when it seems to be targeted at influencing competitive balance, not acceptable. Yeah. You know, I, I'm just going to wrap this up in a moment here because I know you want to take a break so we can get to your cards here in a moment. But yeah, I mean, especially like the, the pit stop thing, which we talked about last week, especially when it comes to slowing them down. I've got a bit of a problem with that when, okay, number one, safety always has to be paramount, like you say, but nobody asked for this. And all the times that we've seen safety issues was in the years in the past, it was something to do with the fuel rig, with uh, with some of the fuel, fuel spilling out, getting on a hot exhaust manifold or whatever and sparking off a blaze, or the jackman or somebody, some sort of somebody getting physically tangled up and, and, and getting injured and getting knocked over when the car pulled away, something like that. But I mean, when it comes to some of these teams that have set these amazing sub two second times for changing four wheels on a car come on man that is amazing stuff i mean wh- what was the world record 1.83 seconds to change four wheels on a car that is Maybe. that is just it is mind-boggling and I, I i'm really disappointed that we may never see that again but we've kind of ranted on about that uh, a couple of times now on the show so let's take a break mark go get your scale go get your cards whatever you need to do because when we get back in just a moment here we're going to break those bad boys out and you can show them off and, and and show everybody what you've actually done so hang in there guys we'll be back on the flip side so don't go away All right. Welcome back, guys. And yes, it's that time. Mr. H, get your cards out. Get them ready. Here we go. Here comes the drum roll. Here it comes. There you go. You got to unmute yourself, my friend. Oh my, I was not expecting the audio drop. And by the way, shame on me. Every time, every time I do that, I must, I I need to contribute something to a charity because again, this is like every Zoom meeting I've ever been in, but. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Just turned into a evening at the improv. Anyways, enough for me and the audio card here. Let's get this thing started. You've been teasing everybody, including myself all week long. So. uh, 
a little bit of a background on this. Sure. So this concept was flagrantly stolen from Lee Ellis, who is a member of the No Dunks podcast on The Athletic, previously of the starters on NBA TV, previously of TBJ and The Score in Canada. So this is something that he's been doing for a while, which is opening typically older packs. People will provide a pack from the 80s or the 90s, and he'd pull out an Otis Thorpe. And of course, they'd be looking for that Scotty Pippen, et cetera, oh, to man. provide a little bit of context. <laughs> The pack was 60 bucks. There's four cards in the pack. I'm looking on eBay right now to see the most valuable cards. And again, I don't know if this means anything, but there's a Topps Chrome Sapphire Formula One, and a word I can't pronounce, Lewis Hamilton, one of one card going for 560,000 Canadian. There is wow. another Lewis Hamilton card going for 50,000 Canadian and another Lewis card, one of, I think, three going for 25,000. So like I said, all along, it's I'm almost probably like buying get- a lottery ticket or something like that. If you get one of those oh. cards that is so like mints and like uh, valuable. Oh, dude, so I'm like so, said, nervous, I, so nervous. So nervous. I probably got a Franz tossed. So I don't, I'm not expecting anything exciting. So the first card is coming out now. Well, look at this. Your favorites, Mr. Valtteri Bottas. I have a Valtteri Bottas Grand Prix driver of the day from Australia. It's a nice looking card. It's fairly weighty. It's glossy. I don't know what it's worth. I'm not necessarily the biggest Bottas fan. So I'm going to put this aside, but I have a Formula One card to put this here if anyone's watching on the live stream and they want to share the value that would be great so card number one a valtteri bot you know everybody's going to be laughing at you for the way that you said for months and months and months you're not a big vb 77 fan and he's the first card you pull out of your pack yeah, of F1 the cards. irony of ironies okay <laughs> number two a Kimi Raikkonen car. Nice. So not a card of Raikkonen, but a card of his car. And on the back, it's got his stats from 2019. So in 2019, Alfa Romeo, 21 plus races, zero podiums, zero wins, 43 points, best finish of fourth and best qualifying pitch position fifth. Nice. And then it's got his, uh, he's got his F1 totals as well. 103 podiums, 21 wins, 1900 points. Very, very cool. So that's card number two. Okay, so in the life or sorry, in the live chat, Sarah Rockney has said she'll give you ten bucks for the Bottas. I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. I need to earn that sixty dollars back so I can Okay, now we have a future star. So future stars is the Formula Two series. This is please. Okay, I'm, I can't pronounce the name. I apologize. Uh, but I'll, I'll hold this up. So it's a young Formula Two driver. He races for a team in Formula Two. He's a Brazilian driver, uh, Campos Racing, and he had a, he's a rookie, so he has no stats to share, but we have a Formula Two card. Cool. All right. Final, final card in the set. Could this be, could this be a Max Verstappen? A Lewis Hamilton. Might it be, uh, well, it won't be a Mazapan because he wasn't part of the set. So let's pull this out. We have a Sebastian Vettel. Oh, there you Grand go. Grand Prix winner. There we go. Sebastian Vettel. Okay, that's uh, that's that's a wrap, folks. So that was my $60. <laughs> 
But uh, a good investment, I think. A good investment. I'll in the quietly in the background. I'll find out how much these are worth. Well, you got ten buds, uh, bucks from Sarah for the botas and five dollars each for the other three. So there you go. You, you made, <laughs> just made back twenty five bucks. So that's that. that that's yeah. not too bad. Net loss of thirty five dollars. There you go. Hey, well, that was pretty cool. But you know, I thought it was kind of interesting because uh, I saw you posting some pictures uh, throughout the week that uh, you you weighed what seventeen grams because apparently just the, some of the. That, that that is actually a thing that some people can kind of tell that, that the heavier the pack is might give you a hint as to what might be inside. That's cool. Yeah, I think what I'd read, and I'd read, I watched far too many YouTube videos about <laughs> this, but it looks like some of the more premium exclusive cars, they're like, they're a heavier chrome. Oh, okay. So folks actually have a pretty good understanding of what could be in the cart. So if you're opening a box with the intent of selling it off, you can oftentimes get a pretty good idea of whether there's a really exclusive card in there. Mm -hmm. So we knew coming into this that we probably weren't going to get one of those. So when we weighed it and it came in under 18 grams, we're like, okay, could still be something cool, but it's probably not going to be one of those extremely rare cars. Card. Yeah, so sorry, what was the most valuable one that you said you uh, researched? You said it was a Lewis Hamilton one, right? Yeah, so again, this is some really half-assed internet eBay research, okay. but in 2020, Topps Chrome Sapphire Formula One Lewis Hamilton, one of one in mint condition, so one in the world is going for five, and again, whether, whether it sells for this, I don't know, but it's listed at 560,000 Canadian. Well, free shipping, free shipping. <laughs> well, I hope for you know half a million bucks for one card that, uh, that it would get uh, free shipping, but... So I guess that one, that card is already out there then, that, that somebody's already found it. Yeah, yeah, that one's already out there. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, what a shame. But yeah, that's pretty cool, though. So do you have any buyer's regret? Or are you glad that you went and dropped the 60 bucks on it? No, I had buyer's regret the minute I clicked <laughs> buy now on eBay. But I thought I thought it would be fun. And I gone mm -hmm. and if the price was more accessible, I'd probably go through and collect the set. But I realized that this is... This series is for hardcore collectors. This isn't for kids. This isn't yeah. for casual fans. Uh, it's fun. It's it's cool, but nobody's going out there and buying. This isn't something you're going to find in a, in your local convenience store. Yeah. It's not something you're going to find at Walmart. Uh, this is something that's really catered for professionals. By all account, the boxes that were sold on the Tops website they were gobbled up by bots within minutes of launch. So people really? are hoarding the boxes and things like that. Wow. Yeah. I think one of the things that we've discovered is there's a lot of money pumping into the US and Canadian economy right now. Mm -hmm. and we're seeing these real asset bubbles and people are spending tons of money on sports memorabilia and collectibles and shoes and sports jerseys and all those kind of things. So you've seen this inflated value. And I've talked about this a couple of times, but I, I love Formula One memorabilia and I want to get more car parts and I'd love to have a side pod kind of hanging on the wall. But prices have been tempered because typically the audience is Europeans mm -hmm. and folks typically in Asia and maybe some folks in, in South America. But as Formula One becomes more and more popular in the US, you're opening up this whole new market to F1 memorabilia. And what we've seen over the last six to 12 months is prices are climbing at a pretty incredible rate because all of a sudden there's this whole new untapped audience of sports memorabilia collectors. Yeah. So all this stuff that I've wanted to buy over the years is completely inaccessible now. Thank you, Americans. <laughs> well, we'll give you a, an example because that's something that I'd looked into. Oh, this is probably going back about uh, 10 years, but what is something that uh, you looked at in the past that is now say beyond the beyond e even stretching a little bit for something unique and something kind of cool yeah so one of the things that i've always wanted is they often sell side pods so the side pod covers from the car mm -hmm. and they're designed to be mounted on a wall kind of in a decorative state and in the past you might be able to pick one of those up from a team like force india or manor marusha or any of those teams mm -hmm. for maybe a couple thousand and a couple hundred for shipping 
at the end of the day now, they're just not available. And if you want to find a side pod for even a lower ranked team from 10 years ago, it's 10, 15, $20,000. Wow. And I think I saw a Mercedes side pod from 2015 go recently for 55,000. So smokes. these parts are going like, they're going like crazy now. Mm-hmm. Wow. That, that, that really is out of sight. I mean, Imagine what you could spend uh, 50 large on. I mean, you're getting yourself a pretty damn nice car for 50,000 bucks. Hey, well, that was cool. You know, thanks for, for doing that. Uh, I feel like uh, that that's I, I feel like I should do that myself. But I know if I did, I'd uh, I, I, I'd come home, the doors, all the locks would be changed on the house and everything. But <laughs> I, I understand it because one of the things that I've done over well for, for quite a long time is I've connected the Panini stickers for the World Cup uh, sticker albums. And, you know, I always get involved with the trades with friends. And, you know, you find like groups on Facebook and things like that. And this is going back to the World Cup in 2014. But I remember on the very last day, um, I can't remember what it was. It came down to I needed like about half a dozen stickers. And I managed to I was at a Whitecaps match that day. And basically, I had to meet one guy and then I need to meet, meet this one lady. I had to make three or four trades that I had to get. I had to give this guy one sticker. He was going to give me two. One of those stickers was going to go to this one lady. She was going to give me three for that, two of which had to go to somebody else. I was like, there was no way that this that like this complicated multi-way deal trade was going to go down in order for me to basically get the four or five stickers that I needed. But it did. It was amazing. And the sense of accomplishment I had lasted for 15 minutes when I realized I was a grown-up doing st- stuff that my kids probably should do. But hey. You know what? That, that's a great point. I would actually love a Panini F1 sticker yeah. book. I know I know what the average cost of finishing one is about $600, but I would love to do that with my son. And same as you, like every time we're in the UK, we pick up the, the latest Premier League sticker book. <clears throat> we buy the packs as we travel around. Yep. When I was a kid, I had a lot of fun with those sticker albums. Cost a fortune, but I would love to do a Formula One one. That would be amazing. Well, it's pretty cool. I mean, the way that I always found work the most is that you try and basically build up a basically some capital and stickers and then that basically what you start doing is you start trading all your doubles but you know there's a there's a bit of a like an economy to these things it's like if you end up with like a Ronaldo or a Messi or something like that then of course those those are like the primo ones that you can basically name your price for however many other stickers you have if somebody needs like a a Messi sticker for their Panini album but it was uh, (laughs) it was pretty cool anyways uh, Michelle G again in the the live chat says uh, maybe you could write off the cost of the pack as a business expense for the pod. I wish we could. <laughs> what what are these days when, when we turn pro, we get out of the basement into a real studio, but uh, hope springs eternal. All right, let's head back now to the to the real news, but that was a lot of fun anyways. Lewis Hamilton said that he knew that uh, Mercedes had some updates planned for the W12s uh, coming uh, for the for the races coming up uh, next on the schedule, and this is despite the team's uh, decision to uh, kibosh the development on the W12 and basically focus all their resources Sources on the new uh, car for 2022. But it, it makes sense that they have to do something because I just can't believe that that Mercedes, even though that they're focusing on, on 2022, that are going to give up this season completely without some sort of fight. I, I would just, I, I could not expect that. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think the comments are warranted. I, I just... I, I I agree, and I think a lot of the speculation. Sorry, I was in the background. Somebody was feeding me the prices of those F one cards, and <laughs> I made about I made about five bucks on that pack. So some good laughs happening in some uh, some of our Twitter <laughs> channels. But but I, I totally agree. I just I can't believe that 
despite the cost cap that Mercedes is in a position where they couldn't produce something from an upgrade perspective, obviously it's not going to be a performance upgrade for the engine because really the engines are basically locked in right now. You can bring changes that improve reliability. You can't bring anything that's going to improve uh, performance. But ultimately, I can't believe that Mercedes came into this season expecting that their aero package was going to be successful. Mm -hmm. I think they knew. I don't think they realized it was going to be so problematic and even if they didn't they would have known at winter testing three four five months that gives you plenty of time to start testing concepts in the wind tunnel and in terms of computer modeling i think they've got some upgrades coming again i don't think they're going to be performance based i think they're going to be aero based because i think they're going to try to make up some of that power by reducing the 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 downforce that they're they're still not even so much the downforce but a lot of the drag that they're encountering with their current their current rate configuration, but I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know if it's going to be enough in terms of leveling the field and increasing the competitiveness with the Red Bull team, but I can't believe that there's nothing coming. Yeah, I mean, uh, James Allison has said that uh, all the upgrades that were already planned and that are in the development pipeline, they're still going to come. So I guess this is what they they plan to do uh, anyways. Maybe where it, where, where it uh, comes down to it, maybe where they're making that differentiation is maybe that there's going to be no upgrades or no further development based on what we know as of today. Maybe they had some sort of a, a procedure or some sort of process already decided uh, at, at the start of the year. Okay, this is what we need to do. This is what we're going to work on over the year. But at, at some point, we're going to just uh, switch to um, all the development on the 2022 car. And I think this is a good moment to inject a little bit of context for our listeners. And I think for those of you that have been with us for the journey through this championship, this is probably something you've heard before. So mm-hmm. bear with us. But Formula One's really unique because we're not racing what are traditionally called spec cars. This is this is a far more technologically advanced series than NASCAR or Indy, which I think a lot of our American listeners might be more familiar with. These are cars that are constantly being evolved. So the car that the team show up with at winter testing or for typically even the first race of the season in Australia are vastly different than the car that they're rolling out after the summer break and teams bring brake upgrades they bring suspension upgrades they bring performance upgrades aero upgrades wing upgrades historically even engine upgrades Mm -hmm. so the cars are constantly evolving but in the background the teams always have to be developing the car for the next year as well so this year was a little bit unusual because this was the year that we were supposed to transition to the new 2020 uh, regulations and it would be a completely new car because of covid and because of the financial disruption caused by it formula one made the decision that to protect the financial integrity of the F1 teams, it would say, Let, let's push off those 22 or those 2021 regulations and chassis changes until 2022. Let's roll over the 2021 or 2020 cars into 2021. So in some cases, the cars that we're actually seeing on the track right now are the same, fundamentally the same chassis that we would have seen last year. They've obviously upgraded them and there's been some aero changes and things like that. But historically, what you have is an in-season car, which is evolving from week to week. And you hear about teams bringing upgrades, like Red Bull's bringing upgrades and Mercedes is bringing upgrades and Aston Martin's bringing an aero upgrade and those kind of pieces. And then it's always exciting to see in free practice and qualifying whether those upgrades have an impact. And sometimes they're actually detrimental and they strip them off and go back to the older Mm -hmm. part. This year, I think the question is how long and for how far into the season our team's going to continue to iterate on this car that's going to be completely abandoned next year. And in the background, all of the teams are busy, busy, busy developing the 2022 car. So there's kind of two forces here. One is which you have finite resources at the factory in terms of personnel. And the question is, 
how long do we commit that personnel to the 2021 car when we really need to be getting that 2022 car up and ready? And we've talked about this as well, that there's a lot of teams, including Haas, that admitted right from the jump, we're not iterating on the 2021 car at all. What we roll out at winter testing is what we're going to bring into the final race at Abu Dhabi. And you have other teams that are competing in the championship that will continue to evolve and iterate on that car. Mm -hmm. But there's a point to your point where there's a point in the season where you basically wrap up development on that 2021 car and you go all in on the subsequent car, the car for the next season. And I think that's the question here is how long and for how much more time is Mercedes going to be willing to invest those resources in this car? And if it gets to a point where the championship seems that it's out of reach, you probably tap out on that 2021 car with the exception of some safety pieces. And then you go all in on that 2022 car because you need to be ready. Yeah, 100%. Hey, you know what? I, this is kind of interesting. Uh, I was watching, I don't remember exactly what race it was, but I was back in the F1 TV archives about a month or so ago. And I was watching a race and I want to say uh, it was the early 90s, but I can't remember exactly which uh, year it was. It was one of the early season races and I can't remember which team they were talking about. But it's it's such a different world that we're in now when it comes to Formula One because you get to the end of the year, car's done, that's it. They go and ruin them at Yas Marina and do all the donuts and ruin the car physically <laughs> by doing but all that stuff. donuts are so fun. They are fun, so fun, totally. But then I, I go back into this early 90s. 90s race and it could have been in Australia, it could have been Brazil, whatever it was, whatever the schedule was. And it was fascinating because you hear the commentator saying something that, well, here they are, they're still using Yas in last year's car. They're hoping by a race or two down the season that they're going to have the new car ready to go. And I was just thinking, gosh, how has Formula One changed? Because that really was a thing that those new cars, they would be developing them and they wouldn't necessarily have them ready to go at the start of the new season. It's just amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We've uh, we've also seen instances where legitimately cars teams don't have the car ready at winter testing and I think was it was it Williams 2019 yep. that they showed up late for winter testing so not only were they behind in terms of development for the car but winter testing is so important for dialing in those cars and making sure that things are functioning as expected and yep. when you miss half of winter testing pretty embarrassing but yeah it didn't mean to interject. That's right yeah they were the that 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 is so uh, accurate because they did show up late to to winter testing and it was just it was a real disaster and it's such a shame to see that team in such a shambles and that really was, I, I think, one of their lowest points because, well, I, I mean, it would have been only about, was it this time last year that they announced the sale of the team from the Williams yeah. to the Drilton Capital Group or whatever their name is, yep. and that change of uh, ownership, but that was a real, real low point. And, well, talking about low points, let's take another break here and then we'll come back on the other side. And uh, Sprint well, qualifying. Some, yes, sprint qualifying. We'll talk about that in just a moment, so don't go away, guys. Fantastic. We'll be right back. At Giant Eagle, you may have spotted the Stacker. With uncanny MyPerks ability, she stacks up the perks to choose either dollars off or up to 20% off her entire grocery bill. The Stacker, stacking up huge savings with MyPerks. Find your MyPersonality and transform your shopping into free gas and groceries. Full details at GiantEagle.com MyPerks. Perks cannot be earned or redeemed on select items. Restrictions apply. 
Okay, this is it. We're back. We're going to talk sprint qualifying now. And I'm the worst person to be talking about this because I haven't actually uh, read up on anything here. And we've had uh, a bunch of people uh, requesting this. Devin sent us an email about uh, that. And I know you've had some some discussions and, and tweets and comments from people on the Twitter. So that we're going to have a 100-kilometer race on Saturday that's going to determine Sunday's grid. So this is a difference, uh, I guess, because they've adjusted something to incorporate all the changes. Are you a little bit more up to speed to me? Because um, I'm not, not living up to the motto of our show, which uh, shame on me. <laughs> yeah, no, and this is something I'm super passionate about. So this is becoming a much more relevant topic because all season we've been talking about this concept of, and I always call it a sprint race, and the backlash from social media is crazy. It's not a sprint race, Hamilton. It's sprint qualifying. But either way, this is something that's obviously new to Formula One. We've never tried it before. We've seen it in other racing series before, and some other championships have experimented with it in a kind of a non-championship perspective. Silverstone's going to be the first time that we see sprint qualifying happen in force. And I think one of the things that was undecided until now is ultimately you're still going to have a race weekend where you have a couple of practice qualifying or practice sessions because teams need that time to dial in the car and mm -hmm. make sure the car is set up properly for the track. And again, one of the things that a lot of folks probably don't realize is that the cars aren't typically shipped whole between races. They're braced, basically broken down to their component parts, packaged up and shipped. And then when they get to the track, they typically spend the Wednesday and the early part of Thursday rebuilding the car. So those practice sessions are really important. Except if you're a Mercedes and you have to ship uh, Valtteri Bottas's car back to the factory to remove the front tire, but hey, I digress. To this day, <laughs> I still don't know how they did that. Did they have to rent a container? Did they tow it? Did they put it on the back of a flatbed? Some, I don't know how they did that. That would have been uh, kind of interesting if that was somebody's carry-on <laughs> on the flight back to the factory. And I was like, um, yes, sir, what is that? Uh, well, this is a suspension arm and Valtteri Bottas's front right totally. tire from the Monaco Grand Prix. I mean, it'd be pretty awesome. But totally. Or anyway. even better, if you're on the channel ferry going from France to the UK and there's a flatbed <laughs> next to your car with a Mercedes Ferrari or uh, Formula One car. But yeah, so the race weekend ultimately is still going to have a couple of practice sessions. The real question though has been who's going to be, who's going to ultimately be credited with pole because you're still going to have a qualifying session, right? You're going to have a qualifying session, which is ultimately going to dictate the grid for sprint qualifying. And then you're going to have a sprint qualifying race, which is actually going to serve two purposes. One is because it's going to determine the grid for the Grand Prix on the Sunday. But one of the other things that you and I haven't spoken enough about is that sprint qualifying also awards cars and drivers points in the championship. So I, again, all of our listeners are probably familiar with this, but on in the Grand Prix on the Sunday, uh, if you finish in the top 10 and you post the fastest lap, you get a championship point. If you finish first, you get 25 points. Second, you get 18 points. Third, you score 15 points. Fourth, 12 points, and so on and so on and so forth. The other thing that's going to be really exciting about sprint qualifying is not only is it now the tool that's being used to determine the grid for the Grand Prix on the Sunday, mm -hmm. but if you finish in the top three, you score championship points. So the car that, or the driver, I shouldn't say the car, the driver that finishes first in sprint qualifying gets pole 
for the race. They get to start on the front row, but they also score three championship points. And if you finish second, you score two. And if you finish third, you score a point. So it's really exciting that this is coming together. There was a lack of clarity around ultimately who's going to be credited with pole. Is it going to come out of qualifying? Is it going to come out of sprint qualifying? We now know it's going to come out of sprint qualifying. We now have more clarity around the championship points that are going to be awarded through the sprint qualifying session. But it could be a really interesting race weekend, right? Because you're now in a position where you could be 25 points down in the championship. Mm -hmm. If you take pole and sprint qualifying and pick up three points and you win the race and pick up another 25 points and you score the fastest lap, you could leave a Grand Prix weekend with 29 points. This could be a real game changer when it comes to the championship ultimately, because if you go in and have a bad weekend, not only could you give up points to your competitor in the race itself, you could hemorrhage points in sprint qualifying. So I'm very, very, very excited. And again, we have a race this weekend. We have a weekend off and then we're going to be to Silverstone. We're two weeks away from this. And again, for me, I'm excited about this because I just think from a, a commercial perspective and a commercial opportunities perspective, there's so much that Formula One could do with these weekends in terms of packaging it up, you know, packaging it as a major, something special, sell it to sell it for more to the TV networks, charge more for streaming, make a pay-per-view. I don't know. I just think there's some really cool things you could do because you get a race weekend. Now we have the Grand Prix, which is always intriguing, but you get this new thing in terms of sprint qualifying, which we've never seen before, but you still have a qualifying session. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really cool. Like you say, I mean, we've got one more race. We get the week, uh, weekend off and then we go to Silverstone where we're going to see this because if you're Lewis Hamilton, well, I guess it, yeah, this is really dependent on what happens uh, this weekend in uh, in Austria. But if uh, let, let's say we see another good result for Max, he extends his lead at the top of the championship again, then you see it's going into that next, um, that, that sprint qualifying. This is the opportunity to extend my lead. But if you're Lewis Hamilton, maybe you're thinking this is my opportunity to close that gap. And this is just one of three pilot sessions, I guess you could call it, that we're going to see this year of the sprint qualifying. So it's, it really is, I don't want to say it's double or nothing, but it, it really does add an added demel or a dimension to the championship that we, we haven't seen before. I mean, we've seen in the past where they've had these double point finishes and some other kind of Not like a fan. gimmick. Not gimmick. A fan. I didn't. Yeah. Total like gimmick. It was a total gimmick. I mean, I mean, it did kind of like helps sort of pad point totals and things like this. But this I like because you have to go out there, you have to earn it. So you know, the sprint qualifying is kind of cool. I like the the idea that the, the the winner of the sprint qualifying session gets on pole, and then you have the qualifying, I guess, to determine the rest of the grid. But I really like this this, this added dimension to it that that it will really could spice up the championship quite a bit. Absolutely. I cannot wait. And I've been, it doesn't take a lot to get me excited about Formula <laughs> One, but this is one of those concepts that really resonates with me. And I think it's great from a commercial perspective. I think it's great from a competitiveness perspective. Yeah. I think one of the concerns from some of the drivers early mm -hmm. on was the fear that sprint qualifying could take away from the Grand Prix on Sunday. I don't think that's going to happen. I really don't. I just think it adds a new, to your point, new dimension of excitement to the weekend. And it gives viewers an extra reason to tune in on Saturday and and really on Friday as well. So I'm very excited about this. I think it's the right play for the sport. You touched on the fact that in the past, Formula One has had experimented with that concept of double points races. And typically that would be the final race of the season and mm -hmm. the thought process there being, hey, look, we don't want the championship being decided in October or September. We want there to be intrigue. We want to give viewers the reason, a reason to tune into all those races down the backstretch of the season. That's why they had that double points finish. I didn't like it. It felt gimmicky. Mm -hmm. This doesn't feel gimmicky to me. This feels authentic 
authentic. It feels real. I love the added excitement. I think there's some additional competitive balance here because ultimately everyone has the opportunity to be successful. I think this is going to be very, very cool. And I think what's really exciting here is it mixes up the championship in a way that isn't gimmicky. It just, it seems authentic. Yeah. And it's, it's a much better solution to that sort of that rolling cutoff, um, qualifying that they tried a couple of years ago that just didn't work where they, they would kind of, I can't even remember the format that they did it, but they used it for two or three races. It just didn't work. And then they went back to the traditional qualifying that we've had for what, 25 years or more now with the Q1, Q2 and Q3, which works. But I'm really excited about this. So we're going to see this in two weeks at Silverstone. We're going to see it again shortly thereafter in Monza. And the third event is still to be determined, but they'll they'll, they'll make some annoy, uh, announcement uh, in, in short order here. But I'm really pumped about it. I really can't wait to see how it's going to work. I, I anticipate that the first event at Silverstone in two weeks' time is going to be utter mayhem. Nobody's going to understand what's going on from the drivers to the teams to the fans to the FIA because Ross Braun, he was trying to explain it to the media this week and he said uh, something to the effect of that I have to be careful uh, how I'm going to explain it because I'm sure it's probably going to change <laughs> before it's all finalized. But what he did say is I, I think... I think it really is the the essence of what it's all about because he says we're trying to introduce something fresh into the sport. And that's that that's what I like. I, I like the term fresh rather than something gimmicky. And yep. I, I like the format. And I, I think on paper, in theory, it really it really has a lot of potential. So it's it's just not I, I don't think that we can be conclusive either way as it being like 100% successful or, or complete disaster after what happens in Silverstone. I mean, if it turns out to be like a real classic, exciting sprint qualifying spe- session, that'll be uh, phenomenal. But I think basically what we'll have to do is we'll have to sit down and look at it again at the end of the season, say, okay, we, we had it at Silverstone, we had it at Monza, and we had it at, say, in Austin, wherever this uh, third this uh, third uh, race is going to be, and then see, okay, well, how did it work? Did, did it evolve? Did it get better? Did it go backwards after these three trials sessions and what are the answers and what can we really look forward to in in 2022 but i'm pumped about it super excited can't wait to see it getting going I'll just add the other couple of things that we should probably be mindful of when this happens is to your point, what does it look like? How does it actually play out? Is it chaotic? Is there confusion? Are teams able to adapt? But I think what the sport's really going to be looking at from a commercial perspective is how many eyeballs do they get for that sprint qualifying session? Ultimately, people watch qualifying. I watch qualifying sometimes, not always. I'll watch it. I'll, I'll watch it on the old PVR. And by PVR, I mean the streaming app because PVR is just a verb at this point. But I'll watch it on the streaming app a little bit later. Later. I don't I don't try to avoid the results because it's not to me that's not that super exciting unless you're closer to the end of the championship. I think for sprint qualifying, this is for me as much watch TV. And I think it's gonna be really interesting to see what the TV ratings are like for this. The other consideration, and this is a big one, is, and we've talked about this before, this calendar was supposed to have 23 races, which would mm-hmm. have been an all-time record for Formula One. We know that the Concord Agreement allows for up to 25 races in the calendar. I wonder I wonder what this does from a logistics perspective. Mm-hmm. If you potentially have a 25 race calendar and you maybe have three or four or five or six weekends that feature sprint qualifying, 
are the demands too great on the teams? What are the logistical costs? What are the costs of the wear and tear on the cars and the components and the engines and the gearboxes? Because ultimately we talk about this as well. The, the technical regulations limit the number of gearboxes you can run, the number of power units you can run. And ultimately there's a cost cap too. And there's a cost to running these races. And I know Formula One has is allowing some exemptions based on the fact that these sprint qualifying sessions really didn't come to be as an official entity until the season had begun. But I'm curious to see that what a calendar looks like that's 25 races long and features four or five or six weekends with sprint qualifying. What are the demands on the series from a financial perspective and a logistical perspective? And even from the drivers, 20 race weekends is a lot for these drivers. 25 is a heck of a lot. And you throw in four or five hundred kilometer sprint qualifying sessions. Is it too much? I, I guess we're going to find out, but it'll be interesting to watch. You know, I also think that they were very clever in the way that they timed this to do the first trial of the sprint qualifying at Silverstone, which is basically four or five days before the start of the Olympic Games, because then we're going to go to Hungary right afterwards, right? And then we go into the summer break. So we're going to have a bit of overlap between Formula One and the Olympics, which I get ridiculously excited about for sports that I usually never follow. But <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> you know, but uh, the, the, I mean, it's a little bit different to being Canadian and identifying with a lot of the winter sports and the winter Olympic Games. But uh, the summer where games, we do very well, yes, thank you very much. Absolutely, but uh, I'm looking forward to the Olympics. But I do think it was very smart that they did it right before that, and then on the flip side, after we go to, well, I guess Mons is a little bit later this year in the schedule. Usually, it was one of the first couple of races back after the summer break. But I think don't we go to Belgium, then to Holland, and then in the beginning of September we go to Italy for the Italian Grand Prix at Monza. So I think that the way that they've planned it out is is pretty good from the point of view of what else is happening out there in the in the sporting calendar at the time of year so great timing you know go go have that at, uh, yeah. at the british grand prix go to the olympics or the olympics go and then we uh well i can't imagine that uh, you're well depends i mean i i'm just not a big fan of the hungaro ring but that's just own totally. personal cool. bias and I just happen to have this on my screen. I don't know why it was up, but I'm just looking at the medal table from the 2018 Winter Olympics. So mm -hmm. number three, Canada, the 29 medals. Number four, the United States with 10 times the population and 23 medals. So <laughs> so I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to bring up the Summer Olympics medal standings because I don't know if we even register there. But uh, I'm quite proud of our performance in the last few Winter Olympics, really going back to 2010 in Vancouver. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, go go back about 15 years ago is when we really sort of stepped it up in the Winter Olympics. Oh, but, and the podium, yeah. baby. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I always say, and th this is a complete uh, tangent, that we should be a little bit more competitive. I mean, sort of like, yeah. I, I think we should compare ourselves a lot more with Australia, the size of population yeah. and, and all that. Yeah. I, I think that they're a good benchmark for us in the, in the Summer Olympics. But hey, when we start our own Olympic theme podcast, we'll have that discussion more. For right now, we're going to take uh, one final break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, well, there's a bit of an Olympic tie-in here because we're going to talk about Sochi. And we'll do so in just a, mo a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. That was a perfect segue. <laughs> I know, right? It's like we're almost getting good at this. This, uh, this podcasting yeah. stuff. Anyways, we'll be right back, guys, so don't go away.
Okay, welcome back to the show. Well, what have we covered so far? We've co- covered uh, uh, Olympics, uh, Olympics, trading, trading cards. cards, upgrades. And well, that, that was a good segue before the break because the Russian Grand Prix and uh, the promoters of the Russian Grand Prix, which has been at Sochi for the past uh, number of years, which was the host of the 2014 Winter Olympic Games, may be splitting duties with the new Agora Drive venue, which will be coming online in 2023. So this is a new track that is uh, being built near St. Petersburg. So it is uh, a little closer towards the the Finnish border. And it's it's an interesting looking track. It's it's very narrow. It's got some, some elevation change into it. And I almost get a bit of a feeling that when I look at it, my, my two immediate kind of impressions I get of looking at this uh, track is it kind of reminds me a little bit of Monaco and it also reminds me a little bit of uh, Paul Ricard. So that that's just a takeaway. I don't know <laughs> how close I am with that, uh, that comparison or that analysis, but I, I think this is very, very interesting. This is another Herman Tilke design track. I mean, is there anybody else in the world that de- designs Formula One tracks besides uh, Herman Tilke and uh, his outfit? But um, very the cool. The Tinker Hatfeld of track design. Yeah, I know, right? But uh, what do you think about this? I thought this news came out of nowhere. And for yeah. clarification, yep. the Sochi Autodrome is probably one of the least, fa- as, as far as fans are concerned, in terms of watching <clears throat> Formula One at home, Sochi's hugely unpopular. You see it in the numbers. You see it in the quality of racing. It hasn't produced a compelling product really since it joined the championship in 2014. And maybe part of that simply because the championship's been so uncompetitive during the time that it's been on the calendar. But this news mm-hmm. came as a, a fairly big shock to me. I was aware that there were was a track, a fairly significant motorsports park being built on the outskirts of St. Petersburg. I had no idea that they were angling to eventually host a Formula One race. I think it's a good place. St. Petersburg is a major metropolitan city. Mm-hmm. It's a, like to your point, I think it's about an hour and a half from the Finnish border by car on the freeway. And obviously Finland produces a ton of motorsports talent and there's a mm-hmm. huge following of motorsports in that country. So it gives them the ability to tap into that audience as well but the news came out of nowhere and i was a little bit excited because ultimately i couldn't imagine that the racing would be worse than sochi i've i've, I've looked at the track i've seen some of the virtual walkthroughs it looks okay um to your point it's pretty tight i think there's about nine meters of elevation change so about 30 feet maybe a little less than 30 feet so at least there's something certainly more than sochi it looks okay i think The other news that broke that I only saw a couple of moments ago is originally the news broke that the race would move there permanently, that this was going to be a Mm full-time thing from 2023 onwards. Now the news is breaking that possibly we'll see the, the race alternate, that the Russian Grand Prix will be hosted kind of on a on an alternating basis between Igor, St. Petersburg, and Sochi, that you'd see Sochi every second year, possibly in even years. Interesting. I'm willing to give it a try. I'm totally cool because I'm so underwhelmed and so disappointed with the experiences that we've seen at Sochi so Mm. far. I know, I know Sebastian Vettel hasn't necessarily disliked (laughs) it, but, uh, but ultimately I, I'm cool and I'm open. I just, to me, it just, it was a shock because as somebody that follows Formula One from a business perspective, specifically in terms of the economics around tracks and hosting fees and the process that goes into 
securing a contract to host a race. This one really came out of nowhere for me. Yeah, and uh, I couldn't help but thinking that when I saw this this um, announcement that they were going to switch between, maybe alternate between Saatchi and St. Petersburg, was it's kind of like they're letting Saatchi down easy. <laughs> it's not that Exa- exactly. Out. Like, we'll still be friends. I'm breaking up, but we'll still be friends. We'll go to the occasional movie. Oh, geez. And just to give everyone a little bit of context, so Sochi, because somebody mm. just asked me in the background, Lewis won 2014, 2015, Nico won 2016, Valtteri won in 17. Lewis won in 18, Lewis won in 19, Valtteri won in 20. So we've seen six races there, seven races. Mm-hmm. Mercedes won every single one of them. Which was the year that Lewis uh, had to, or he got the benefit of the team orders and Bottas had to pull over for him? Was that 19 or 18? I, th- I think that was 19. I think so. And I mean, he was a little bit kind of cheesed off about that because Lewis was well ahead in the championship at that yeah. point in 2019. And I think that was basically the explanation that they gave. And I think it was after that race that Toto had made that that now infamous comment that uh, Bottas was the ideal wingman or something like that, <laughs> which was uh, a little bit a little bit mean, I thought. But um, yeah. I-, I was wrong. So I was wrong. It was 2018. And was if it 2018? Recall, wow. Yeah. There was a quote from, uh, there's a quote here from Valtteri mm-hmm. Bottas, uh, Sochi 2018, that was a pretty tough race at the 31 year old during the, th- during series three of drive to survive on Netflix. Mm. Tough to accept. I was pretty angry. Honestly, I was thinking, why do I do this? I was thinking of quitting F1 of giving up straight after the race. Right. I said, I wouldn't do it again. Yep. Yeah, that yeah, that's I remember hearing him say that. Now, yeah, wow, time flies. I I really thought yeah. that was only two years ago. Yeah, but yeah, I wouldn't uh, miss Sachi at all. Be, excuse me, because it is flat as a pool table. And apart from Danny Kvyat ruining his Red Bull career by driving to the back of Sebastian Vettel and then getting demoted, and then. I guess by virtue of that, getting Max promoted to Red Bull (laughs) is uh, basically uh, made made Formula One history. But anyways, let's go on to another FIA story. And this one is not really too much of a surprise, but apparently, uh, according to uh, race director Michael Massey, that the amount of radio traffic has reduced since F1 had started broadcasting them. And I'm not really too surprised to hear that, but I'm a little bit uh, disappointed. But of course, they want to keep everything as close to their chest as as possible, right? But you would think that even if something was going on that they were trying to maybe keep secret from the other teams, that I'm surprised that they would just basically clam up and just maybe give the necessities out over the radio. I'm just surprised that some of them aren't maybe using some sort of code words, Yeah, I mean, I which which to me t- seems like a very Formula One kind of thing, right? I completely agree. I think it's really two pieces, right? Which is one, teams want to protect the integrity of the condition of their race and their strategy. And I don't think they want a lot of that <clears> to be public. If, if they're struggling with tires, they probably know it through the telemetry. But I think oftentimes the drivers share a lot of really valuable feedback over the radio that the teams may not be aware of that. This doesn't feel good. I'm getting vibration through the steering wheel. Uh, I think I've got a slow puncture. Some, sometimes they're sharing feedback with the teams that the teams aren't picking up through the telemetry. Mm-hmm. And likewise, oftentimes the teams are aware of issues with the car that the drivers aren't. So they use the radio to communicate those issues like hey you need to adapt your driving stay off the curbs break Mm -hmm. later break earlier all those kind of pieces obviously you don't necessarily want that in the public domain you don't want the other teams knowing about it the other piece and i think this is probably even a bigger concern for the teams is obviously in the heat of the moment in the heat of competition drivers will say things 
And it's coming from the <laughs> right place, frustration, anger, passion, energy. But I think there's a distinct concern now that if they say the wrong thing before that race is even over, it's all over social media. And I think if I'm a driver, I just want to avoid that backlash. And, you know, we talked about this endlessly in Monaco where Hamilton had made some comments that were not necessarily, not necessarily positive towards his team. And that blew up and that was all over social media. Yep. And likewise, I think sometimes there's the risk that somebody could comment on another driver because there may have been contact or an ugly overpass, or, you know, if there was a brake check or something like that. And if they use the wrong word or the wrong verbiage or something's taken out of context, suddenly that becomes a story in itself. So I think mm -hmm. the teams are worried about strategy becoming public or becoming entering the public domain and undermining their competitive uh, advantage. But two, I think sometimes the drivers are just scared that if I say the wrong thing, it becomes a story in itself. And then I've got to answer questions about it for two months. Well, I mean, Valtteri at the the, the French Grand Prix just uh, two weeks ago, I mean, that really kind of uh, blew up uh, on its own. I mean, just the way that he got so furious about the fact that they didn't listen to him about switching into two pit stops, which I, I think it was fine. And I had certainly no issues with him uh, get, getting upset like that on the radio. But it is kind of interesting. And, and like I say, I'm surprised that they haven't found some sort of workaround. And I, I know they still use the like the pit board that whenever they go by the pits that they hold up the, the sign over the side of the pit wall. But yeah, very, very surprising. But finally, before we get to our, our mini preview, which is basically the same preview that we had uh, last week for the Styrian Grand Prix, because we're still at the Red Bull ring for a second week in a row. This I found very, very interesting because according to Ferrari, they feel that, uh, well, Mattia Bonato, team principal that is, feels that Mercedes is being distracted by a lack of stability, which I find really, really interesting. So inter uh, this is what uh, Mattia has to say, quote, before looking at the technical aspects, and it must be acknowledged that Red Bull has done a great job, I think it is right to point out that they are reaping excellent results because they can count on a team that has been stable for many years. Despite having to face dif difficulties, despite not having won, they have continued to build a group to try and improve their car. And what we see now is the result of that hard work. If, on the other hand, we look at Mercedes, already in the last year, there have been significant internal changes with roles that have perhaps been revised, plus the signature with the driver that only arrived in February. I think there are signs of distraction that has led to the current situation, end quotes. Interesting, because if there's anyone out there that's the poster child for instability, I would think it would, <laughs> <laughs> I think it would have to be Ferrari. So at least, uh, well, from my point of view, at least uh, Mattia is making this comment from a point or uh, I guess a point of view of uh, expertise, because I think that would be something that I, I think Ferrari is well known for that. I mean... They, they've been, I, I mean, he's been in a position where they've, uh, they, they just restructured a lot of things. I mean, he's had his own role uh, restructured. I mean, there's been a lot of things going on behind the scenes there for a, a good number of years. So I think that maybe he's recognized some similarities between what's, what's gone on at the Scuderia and also with the, what's happened with Mercedes. So I, I think it's a, I think it's a fascinating quote. 
I don't think that Ferrari doesn't relish this moment. I think it's <laughs> challenging if mm. if you're Ferrari with their mountains of financial resources and you have seen a chief rival competitor dominate the championship for seven years, you're probably relishing the fact that there's a little bit of instability there, especially mm-hmm. when you've experienced so much of it yourself. But I think his observation really isn't unlike something that you and I started talking about in the off season. We talked about the fact that the Valtteri Bottas contract situation was going to become a distraction, and it is absolutely a distraction. We mm-hmm. talked about the fact that the Lewis contract situation become a distraction. It absolutely is. And we talked about the fact that if this team isn't able to get off to a quick start, it was going to create a backlash and instability and friction and noise, unlike anything that this team has seen. And that's exactly what's happened. We're 30% of the way through the championship. Uh, Neither of the contracts for their two drivers are settled. There's no clarity about what's going to happen there. And furthermore, 30% of the way through the championship, they are behind in both the driver's championship and the Constructors' Championship. So all of those things that may have been glossed over in the past in terms of chemistry within the teams and contract negotiations, those things don't matter if you're winning. If you're winning and you're leading the championship, they don't become stories. But because they're not leading the championship and because Mm -hmm. these are unsettled issues, they do become a a distraction and they do prove to be something that undermines the stability of the team. So I think he's simply calling out something that you and I have been talking about for six or seven or eight months and that our listeners and Gen DTS have been talking about for four or five months. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, uh, in the past, it's always been Lewis saying something to the effect of, well, you know, we've got to, to concentrate on bringing this championship or these championships home. We'll get this done in the off season. Now, I mean, they're in such a completely different place. They're, they're chasing. I mean, they're not miles behind, but I mean, it is a different place than that they've been used to being since 2014. They're, they're chasing both the drivers and the constructors uh, championship. Lewis did say, what was it only about a week or two ago that they have had some discussions that they've gone well so far, but there there hasn't been obviously any announcement to a new deal for Lewis Hamilton in terms of, yes, there's a new deal, and if so, for how many years, term uh, term and price and everything like that. Well, I mean, we usually don't uh, hear the amounts anyways, but still uh, very, very uh, fascinating. But I, I think you're, you're absolutely spot on when you say that these things, especially the contract situation between Lewis and Valtteri, and then you throw uh, George Russell as the, the heir apparent to either one of those drivers, is uh, is another distraction, the distraction of the, that the car just isn't performing to what we've been used to. The fact that uh, they, they've had some some issues uh, because of that, obviously, that the fact that they've been out there and and talking about things like the like the, uh, the, the straight line speed of the Red Bull, which was kind of a little bit loosely, but not really uh, you know, attributed to uh, development of the engine, the flexi wing. So a, a lot of things have been said out there and uh, a lot of things have been 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 happening and yeah it it has just become at least on the outside it looks like it's 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 been distracting so yeah it is what it is i suppose well there you did two two zoom call calls at the same same time here i'll unmute you and you can speak again there you go <laughs> and you're still muted there you go <laughs> okay i'm going to take away your producer rec- ah, hey. anyways don't shoot the messenger. I'm just the the one here. I can. I have the power to mute or unmute you. You're you're self muting. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No, I, I agree with everything you said. I think it's a, mm. a unique situation for Mercedes. I don't really have a lot else to add. I just, I fear that it's going to compound and compound and compound. And ultimately, you and I have talked about this before that ultimately the second driver seat won't be determined until Lewis re-ups because I think, and we've talked about this so many times, ultimately Lewis is going to have a very significant role in determining who that second driver is. And my sense is a big part of his contract is going to be predicated on his ability to help determine who that second driver is. And he's made comments recently about the fact that to him, Valtteri is still the perfect teammate. He scores some championship points. He wins the occasional race. He's there. He helps them win championships in terms of mm -hmm. the constructors, and he doesn't create any friction. And that might just be because either he recognizes precisely what his role was within that team, which is to support Lewis chasing world driver championships or simply he doesn't have the capability to compete with Lewis. So it's not, it's not a question mark anyways, but uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Hey Mark, I'm getting a little bit worried that the power might go out here again. So let's quickly uh, do a preview of the race on Sunday while we still have power here. And more importantly, <laughs> well, I've got battery power on the laptop, but more importantly, we have an internet connection. So I really don't have a lot to, to say this week compared to what I had to say this time last week, just based on the fact that we are at the same track. I would be interested. I didn't get a chance to check what the, the weather forecast is going to be it's, like. It looks like Sunday. it's warm and dry. Weather's going to be much more stable. So obviously okay. we had we had some rain last weekend. The weather this weekend looks like it's going to be much more stable. Um, mm -hmm. Possible air ambient air temperatures of around 32, track temperatures in the mid 40s. So probably a little bit more consistent with what we've seen um, in Austria <laughs> in the past. It's going to be an interesting yep. weekend. The betting line overwhelmingly favors uh, our good friend Max Verstappen. So he's currently, I think, favored to win. Mac, uh, Lewis is 2-1. to one. Valtteri and Sergio are as far back as 12-1. to one. And I'm not a big betting guy, but it's good to sometimes get a sense of where the industry is leaning. The other big change this weekend is that Pirelli's bringing a softer tire. So the tires yes. they're going to be bringing are going to be a step softer. So typically, this is a one-stop race. It might be different this weekend. So tire strategies could come into play. Obviously, we could see some disruption. We could see some noise. We could see some issues in the pit, which could mix up the, the dynamics of the race. So look for that as well. And then the other main thing, too, is a lot of our listeners were asking about this track. So I just want to add a little bit more color in terms of the makeup. Obviously, this is a track that sees some pretty extreme elevation changes. I didn't speak mm -hmm. specifically to what that looks like. If you see the race and you see those high, wide angles, it's obviously carved out of the side of a mountain. The actual elevation changes are about 70 meters from the lowest point to the highest point that's the most extreme by a fairly significant margin it also has three significant braking zones we didn't talk about this last weekend either two of them are classified as extreme or heavy i think is the specific term and when you talk about a heavy or an extreme braking zone you're talking about braking forces that exceed four g's which is very 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 significant the other major consideration and again shame on us because we didn't talk about it last weekend one of the other things that makes this a really, really interesting track is the curbs are extremely aggressive and it's mm -hmm. not unusual to see cars suffer suspension damage or aerodynamic or aero damage due to the curbs themselves. So you'll often see the cars try to stay off of them. If they do run a little bit wide, it's not unusual to see suspension failures and race weekends end very, very quickly for these cars. So just a couple of interesting points that we really didn't talk on last weekend. But to your point, otherwise, it should be very, very similar. I am curious, though, do you have a, do you have a specific favorite going into this weekend? 
Well, again, like I think uh, I've said many times that when it comes to uh, betting or choosing a, a winner, I find it kind of hard to bet against the, the, the person or the team that is in form. I think that based on what we've seen over the past uh, four or five races, Red Bull has been that team in form and uh, Max has done very well at the Red Bull ring over the past uh, several years. And so I, I would think that he would uh, be the one to be the favorite uh, for, for this race. And I think, like you say, that it is interesting that uh, Pirelli is uh, switching it up. So they brought their mid-range uh, tire compounds, the C2, C3, and C4. This weekend, they're bringing the C3, C4, and C5, which are the softest uh, compounds. So I didn't really get a chance to look into this uh, very further. So I don't know if this was uh, done on purpose, but, um, you know, uh, on purpose in terms of yeah, uh, yeah. sort of mixing things up. Right. But I like it from the fact that the race strategy is just not be a control C, control V, cut and paste job for for the engineers and the strategists said uh, this uh, this weekend. So, I mean, the conditions could have something to do with it. So I think that that's going to make it uh, into, uh, interesting. But I think that uh, Max is just, I, I think he's feeling it right now. The car is going good. I think he's in the he's in the zone right now. And I would ex- expect him to have another good uh, race. But I mean, Lewis, I think that he, we're, we're going to see another level of motivation. I don't want to say desperation because we're, we're not even halfway through the season yet. But I think that the, that Lewis is going to be extra motivated this weekend to get a good result. He's going to want to qualify very well, of course, try and get that pole position, try and stay ahead of Max on the track. I know that there's still concern that, uh, that that Red Bull has the straight line speed advantage. But I think that if Max wins this uh, weekend and Lewis doesn't win and finishes second or you know perhaps even lower down, I think that he'll start to genuinely get seriously concerned about where this championship is going because Max almost has that one race win uh, buffer in his back pocket. I think that the, the 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 gap is now what 22 points or 23 points, so not quite that 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 one race buffer just yet, but I think it's getting very close and I think that if he has another race weekends that that he's had where well, I mean he's he's had podiums. It's not like well, except in uh, in in Azerbaijan, but I think that if he finishes behind Max this weekend, I think he's going to start getting seriously concerned as to where this championship's going. Absolutely. I think the one consideration, though, is if you look back at the last four or five or six years, Red Bull Ring, it's one of my favorite tracks. I love watching races here. It's beautiful. I love the fact that it's short. I love the braking zones. I love the the complicated curbs. Like I love everything about this track, but it's not necessarily a track that's been super friendly to the Mercedes team. And obviously, it's beneficial to race here because it's a track that's very familiar to Red Bull. They own it. And to have consecutive races there because of COVID last year and because Mm -hmm. of the fact that this year's calendar is very, very fluid and they needed to be able to slot in a race to make up for another race that was dropped from the calendar. Again, it's doubly beneficial to Red Bull. So I I wouldn't be surprised if obviously Max wins. I think he's favored. I think the betting lines are correct. He's probably going to take pole. He's going to start on the front row and he's probably going to win. Now that said, all this could change because we could see some strategy chaos. We Mm -hmm. could see some issues in the pits, all that kind of stuff. And hopefully do. I would love to see a two-stop race here for some of the key teams. I think where it's really going to be important for Mercedes is to make a mark at Silverstone in two weeks. So Silverstone is obviously psychologically very important to the Mercedes team. It's their home race. Their their factory is less than an hour away. Lewis has absolutely dominated there. Lewis won there in 08. He won there in 14, 15, 16, 17, 19, 20. He (laughs) owns this track. And I think if Mercedes goes into Silverstone at the British Grand Prix and they struggle and Red Bull dominates again, I think psychologically that'll be a blow to that team in a way that 
that a loss at the Red Bull ring very much won't be because that's something that they have owned. Psychologically, they've owned it from a championship points perspective. They've owned it. I think, again, I don't think Mercedes has got high expectations. I think they have hopes and dreams that they're going to be successful and they might be take a race win this or take a win this race weekend. But ultimately, I think Silverstone could be the race that that really crushes them mentally and psychologically. You know, it's uh, funny because uh, when you say that uh, they literally own that track and Lewis literally owns that track, he literally does because they've named one of the streets after them, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> not, which is which is really cool. But yeah, I mean, uh, if they have a bad result there, I mean, that will be a massive psychological uh, blow to them. And who knows? I mean, I don't think they'll ever give up, but I certainly would wonder then if uh, the, the gap in the championship really gets too big, how motivated they will when we already know that they're focusing on the the, the, the development for 2022 but at some point you have to wonder if it gets too far out of reach how hard are they going to really want to fight back i mean uh, who knows right but very very cool anyways mark i think this is uh, the the perfect place to to sign off for tonight thank you to one and all for joining in uh, for especially those that have joined in on the live chat on the youtube stream Enjoy the race. If you want to get in touch, Twitter is the best way to do so at ScooteryF1Pod and email if that's your jam, ScooteryF1Pod. I didn't even say the show name right. Shame on me. I still can't say it. <laughs> ScooteryF1Pod at gmail.com. That's it, guys. That's a wrap. Enjoy the race. We'll be back on Sunday night. Take care. Talk to you guys soon. Bye, everybody. Bye for now. <laughs>